everybody, thank you for staying. And I'd like to thank, to welcome Sally Beamish and thank her very much for agreeing to do this. For those of you who don't know Sally, she's a fantastic composer and also violist. And uh, one of the many reasons I, w I wanted her to join me tonight was that uh, she's actually written a concerto for me um, called City Stanzas, uh, your third piano concerto, I want to say, yeah, uh, which is a, in some ways, sort of conceived as a response to the first Beethoven piano concerto, which, you know, they, they were premiered together and gen generally have been performed together. So Sally has kind of, um, and that has responded to Beethoven's music in a very specific way, and not for the first time in that piece, I gather. Um, and so I thought it would be particularly interesting uh, to hear from her, from a compositional point of view, about you know, her relationship to, to this music. And um, I guess I'll start by just asking you about that relationship. I mean, you're, again, you, I, I didn't realize you were just telling me you played the piano as a child, you played the viola professionally for years, and you know, you've had these experiences as a composer. You know, I, it's a horribly broad question, but sort of what has Beethoven meant to you and what does he mean to you? Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me to have this chat, which is really nice, and um, thank you for an amazing concert. Um, Yes, so uh, I grew up in a musical family and my paternal grandmother was a really good pianist and I somehow ended up with her leather-bound edition of Beethoven sonatas, which I, I had a whole pile of her music by the piano. She used to kind of feed me uh, music and, and uh, she was very keen that I should learn to sight read. And... I just used to spend sort of four or five hours a day playing the piano and just reading through all this material that, that she gave me and just, you know, keeping on trying and um, playing piano duets with her and she wouldn't stop and wait for me. So that, that's how you learn to sight read. <laughs> um, and then later I, I learned the violin and I think the first string quartet I ever played was uh, Beethoven Opus 18 number no. 4. And I'll never forget it. It was just the most extraordinary feeling, the, 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 the richness of, of that C minor tonality. And, um, and then later, that was the piece that I, I um, uh, took as the starting point for uh, the Brodsky Quartet, who, who commissioned a set of quartets to go with the Opus 18 quartets, rather in the way that you did with the five concertos. And I chose the first movement of, of that um, quartet as a starting point. And it, it's just a very daunting thing to do, to respond to Beethoven. I mean, um, what, what, do you, what do you take out? What, what do you put of your own? And what, what is it that you're, you're trying to do? And, and in both cases, I think with the quartet and with the concerto, um, I wanted to say something of my own, which was very specific. So, so with the string quartet, I had just been in America and heard a lot of American, new American music and experienced that direct communication, which was actually quite a new thing then. Um, we were still um, in a very complex world of new music in Britain and I think the American voice was just beginning to be heard over here and you know the excitement of John Adams and simplicity and repetition and I was very excited by that also always inspired by jazz and I realized that those opening the opening sequence in the in that first movement of the Beethoven would work as jazz 
And so it was quite an irreverent piece. I, I took a tiny little fragment from each, um, from each of the themes of the Beethoven, just the first movement, and made each one of those, expanded each one of those into my own movement. So it's fascinating. I, 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 um, I would love to, I think it's a good, hopefully a good segue, to talk, to talk about City Stanzas, the concerto that you wrote for me. And would it be fair to say that it's a, um, I would not, deconstruction is the wrong word, but a, um, a kind of a, a reinterpretation of the Beethoven that, that turns its, not so much its material, but its message on its head? Yeah, this, the, this concerto was, it was so much to do with Jonathan, because I remember the first time I met you, you were already upset about the political situation in America. And I think the, um, the Brexit referendum had happened here, and we were both feeling very unsettled and shocked. And, and we had a discussion about how the concerto would be. And I had this idea that it was going to be... Um, because I'd ha I, I ended up writing three piano concertos in one year. There was uh, just a crazy timetabling thing that happened. But luckily, each one of them was very specifically related to its pianist, and they each came with an idea, thank goodness. So um, I had decided, for various reasons, that the third one, because it was related to Beethoven, was going to be about creative, uh, about the creativity of of humans. I'm just know. going to cut it for one second and say that the, the first Beethoven Piano Concerto, which is the, the work in question, is it's a very positive piece. Right? Yeah, it's a very optimistic. C major and it's, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I, I thought I would do, because um, the, the first two concertos had been about the mountains and then about the sea, I thought this would be about the city and about man's inventiveness and relating that to, to Beethoven. It would be a sort of celebration. But we had this conversation about the piece, and then you kind of went, went off the radar, and I couldn't get in touch with you. And I was trying to email you, and I thought, what, what's going on? So it was and, November and it, 2016. Yeah. <laughs> you can do the math. And it turned, it turned out that Jonathan was just so upset that, that you, you couldn't work, you couldn't speak to anybody. Yeah. And um, so it kind of went into the piece, that, that whole feeling, that, that shock, and that... Um, the, the feeling that, so having seen the city, which is what the piece was going to be about, and it's called City Stanzas, having seen it as a sort of emblem of, of inventiveness, and um, it, it then, I, I then began to see man's creativity as being actually an assault on the, on the planet, that, that this ever, ever more sophisticated way of ways of, of killing each other you know the the development of armaments the um, the way we are destroying everything by wanting more and more and suddenly the piece was turned on its head and it became a kind of grotesque um, parody of the Beethoven in a way. It's what I, I find it incredibly fascinating. I've talked about it with many people, this idea that, I mean, at the point at which this change happened, the piece was largely written. No, I think a lot of it you had already composed. And the idea that the, the, the material's meaning can change that dramatically, even to you as the composer, yeah. was something I was so fascinated by. It was as if something kind of got into it. Some, it was almost like a poison got into mm -hmm. the piece. Yeah. <laughs> and um, it, it just took on a completely different color. 
Yeah, and I remember you also saying to orchestras about that one, the one place in the second, in the third movement, that the, they should find a sound that reminds one of, of poisonous gas. I remember yes. you saying that. <laughs> yeah, which yeah. It's, a, it's, it's a very eerie moment, actually. That, that, that to me, as, you know, as someone who, you know, deals with these great pieces all the time, but I, I'm not a creator. You know, I'm so fascinated by that idea that, that about the way the creative process works and that the, the meaning of a piece can evolve so dramatically in the writing of it. I find that really interesting. It doesn't always happen. That, that I mean, um, historians are forever trying to relate um, composers to what was going on in their life at that time. And I think I think to some extent you can you can see the, the passage of Beethoven's life through his work. Um, but with Mozart, for instance, you can't no. really. I mean, okay, the Requiem, but I mean, he he wrote the musical joke just after his mother died, and. Um, he maybe maybe was um, music did something else for him. So sometimes I find that that music is something I need to use in order to get something out, something something that's very hard to deal with, and it is the, my go-to way of of dealing with things. Other times it's 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 an escape from what's going on. So you can't always relate. Yeah. That's true as a as a performer as well. I mean, there are certain pieces that I love so much to play because they put me in contact with something that I need to express and that I could never express with words and that therefore they, like, it, it's such a gift to be, able to, to, like, to, um, to be able to access something inside myself through music. And then there are other, there are other pieces which are definitely escapism to play. You know? mm -hmm. So I think it's maybe ultimately not, not that different. Another thing I, I was interested to ask you um, is if you sort of agree with my central thesis, which was why I, I was interested in having five composers write these five pieces, which is that Beethoven is one of those figures that is sort of not really ignorable, that there are other composers who are maybe as great, there's certainly, you know, th these things are all matters of taste, one can prefer someone else, but that if you're sort of a working artist, you have to in one way or another, confront Beethoven, even if it's in a negative sense, even if it's a rejection of some way. I, is that something you agree with, or do you think that's a little overly broad? Beethoven is, is a huge part of the landscape. I mean, yeah, it, it, it's just there. And it's something that has to be um, acknowledged and dealt with and, and responded to. Um, it's the most extraordinary gift, as you were saying earlier. I mean, just to have this music and, and you, you're you just forever thinking, where did that come from? How, how did that happen? And just the most extraordinary sort of inventiveness of melody and harmony and, and uh, new departures, um, like the opening of the of the E flats. I mean, <laughs> where did that come from? Uh, it, and it had never been done before. No. I always think that that must have been very inspiring to Schumann. If I think of, when I think of the beginning of the A major string quartet, it seems almost like an homage to that. Yeah, but yeah, this idea of beginning with a question, beginning uh, from a point of harmonic uncertainty, it's, it's so daring. Yeah, that's some, I so badly hope to be able to convey that because, you know, with the context of 200 more years of music, it's hard, I think, maybe for an audience to be aware of how radical an idea like that is. 
it's interesting that you um, you were talking earlier about about um, the whole issue of repeats in Beethoven and um, whether or not one does the repeats and how the the, the music was written at a time when of course nobody knew it <laughs> and uh, that's something I think about a lot with um, which is why I like to introduce my music wherever possible because it, you can give you can give the audience sign, signposts through the piece um, which really help. But actually listening to a piece of music for the first time, even if it's Beethoven, is um, an unknown journey. And I, I really, I don't know if you agree, but I don't think you can actually get a piece of music first time around. I think you have to know it. Yes, I think so. I think that the first time you're always looking for some kind of a way in. And I mean, I think the narrative of it is never going to reveal itself clearly the first time. I mean, I also think there's something wonderful about that moment when you hear it the first time, even though you know, you're not comprehending it on all the levels. I, always, I somehow feel envious of people who still get to hear these pieces for the first time. Again, I know I will never hear Opus 109 for the first time again. But, but in a way, it's, it's like trying to, trying to take in a building by looking at, at it brick by brick, because until you know the whole shape, you can't really really get what it is. And I think in, in city stanzas, I tried to make these structures which were like buildings by making um, a, a palindrome at the end so that, so that the material um, goes forward and then comes out again. So it's exactly, it's repeated back to front at the end of the piece. But in fact, if you do that in music, it's just incredibly unsettling. I mean, it's like listening to a, a gramophone record backwards. Um, it doesn't make it a stable structure at all. That was something that I'd never tried doing before City Stanzas. But I have to say that is an amazing feat. It reminded me a little bit of, I, mean, I haven't read it, but apparently there's a book in French that doesn't use the letter E, which seems like it would be impossible and seems like it would be a gimmick, but apparently it reads beautifully. And similarly, you know, it's the first movement of City Stanzas that, that's a, I guess you would call it a palindrome. I, I mean, maybe I should be embarrassed to admit this, but I had been practicing it for a few weeks before I noticed because it, it's so, it feels so right. It feels like it's the piece it's supposed to be and it also happens to be a palindrome. It's really, it's quite, it's quite remarkable. I, I kind of created it like a, like a parade coming into a town, so you hear it coming in the distance. So the, the side drum that, that kind of approaches very softly and gets louder and louder. You hear that at the end. So that, that part of the palindrome is, is clear because yeah. the, the side drum is retreating. Yeah. But I really ought to have noticed because the, when the second half begins, it does so with the piano in a very, I mean, it's, a, it's an arpeggio, which is an upward version of what was down the first time. I thought, oh, I remember that. And then I didn't put two and two together and realized <laughs> that everything that followed was also All the scales were upside down. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm, you know... Yeah. Classical musicians are not always known for our intelligence, but um, I did work it out eventually. Yeah. Well, it's all very well yeah. having systems, but they have to they yeah. have to work, and, and it doesn't matter if, if the audience don't don't yeah. know or don't get it. Yeah. I often wonder about programmatic music, you know, because a lot of my music is is a narrative, and whether how important it is that that the audience actually knows the story, or whether whether it doesn't matter. Yeah. Then. I, I, I sort of think that with really great programmatic music, 
you don't maybe need to know this. I mean, the story will then deepen your experience or enhance it, but the, the music itself maybe tells the story? I don't know. I mean, I, I think that if you absolutely need the story to appreciate it and you wouldn't otherwise, then maybe there's something missing in the notes themselves. I don't know. Yes, maybe. Yeah. So maybe the function of the story is for the composer as a starting point. And I, I very often do start with, with a, a piece of writing or a painting or, or another piece of music. Another piece of music. <laughs> um, I think maybe we can open up to questions if people want to ask questions to, to, to Sally or to me about any of what we've been talking about. I think there's someone in the back with a mic. Yes. You referred earlier to exchanging correspondence with the pianist in the process of composing them. I'd be interested to hear more about what you see the role of this exchange of ideas or, I don't know, is it, is it sending material for review or change, exchanging ideas? How do you see that as, what role do you perceive that as having within your compositional process? Is it something which makes, I mean, you say you wrote three concerti in the same year. How does that collaborative process work in terms of how it affects the final result, compositionally speaking? Well, the wonderful thing is, is that it is always a kind of alchemy between composer and, and performer. And um, the performance is obviously more than essential for the composer because the score doesn't make any noise on it. So. <laughs> um, but um, I love that process of, of handing over to the performer and then hearing things that I didn't know were there sometimes um, in the interpretation. But um, as a starting point, it's different with every performer. I've written concertos for, for performers who haven't wanted to talk to me at all beforehand. And... Um, and I've sent them sketches and I've had nothing back, you know, because they just, that's not the way they, they want to do it. They want to be given a piece and, and then get to know it. Um, and other performers who really want to be part of the process, you know, who, who will sort of say, uh, by the way, I, I don't like doing double stopping or um, don't give me too many octaves or, or whatever. Um, uh, or... or um, I had to write, I wrote a cello sonata once, which was commissioned, this was the commissioner, not the performer, but he said, I want it to be in C major. Oh. <laughs> and, and actually that was brilliant. It was, it was such fun to do that and have permission to do that. So. Was it to do with the program it was going to be on or did he just really like C major? <laughs> I don't think he really knew, actually. I think, I think he wanted something that was cheerful. Uh-huh. He kept saying, it's got to be cheerful, C major. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, at least he knew what he wanted. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's right. C major is just a starting point. Um, Jonathan, sorry. Jonathan, can I... Uh, sorry, having just sort of been at your concert, I want, wanted to ask you, if I may ask you something, yes, um, about sort of your relationship to Beethoven... Um, and quite simply, you know, what is it about Beethoven that inspires you? I'll, I'll try to do the little answer because I could go on for a very long time. Um, I think um, pr there are probably three things that I need um, to mention. The first is, is the scope of his imagination, which I, seems often to me infinite. 
uh, that, you know, I think in a program like this with five sonatas, you hear the unbelievable range of expression and the range of character um, and the range of ideas. I mean, there's so much, especially in the, well, no, also in Oba 78, there's so much humor in this program. And then, you know, in a 109, above all, profundity of just such a degree. Um, so that's the one thing. I think the other is the, um, is the incredible innovation. I mean, the, I, th I think this program actually also demonstrates that, that you, know, you have a piece from really quite early in life, you know, to 109, which is, you know, from very much from his late period. And the way in which, I mean, these pieces are all called sonata, right? But I mean, how much do they have in common, really, in terms of how they're shaped, how they're imagined, how they're structured? So I find that, I mean, his, his kind of, his, his ability to invent um, a new form each time is, is really so inspiring and so astonishing. But I think the third thing, and maybe ultimately the most important, is just simply the force of his personality. I just think, I don't really find that there's anything like it, that I, I, there, is, there is other music that I love as much, but there is nothing else that grabs me by the collar in the same way, and I find that the, the intensity of Beethoven and the intensity of Beethoven's need to be heard is, is, is one of the most powerful things I've ever experienced as a musician or, in fact, as a person. Yeah, I, th I mean, I, I, yeah, speaking to what Sally was talking about, I think Beethoven is someone who every, everyone who came after him in one way or another had to, had to confront him. And I think Schumann, Schumann, yeah. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, Schumann, I raised money for a monument for, to Beethoven in Bonn. So, I mean, he was certainly someone who was keenly aware of, of Beethoven as a presence. Um, Sally, Jonathan, um, very simple question. You've sold the music to me. When are we going to hear it? Oh. Or have I missed it? Which is quite possible. Yeah, it's a shame. It's been done a couple times in the UK, but not in London. We did it in Manchester and in Scotland. But... It was broadcast. And we have recorded it now. Yes, and it's been recorded. Um, it's not going to come out for quite a while, unfortunately, but the, it, it will... It will happen. It's and it was, you know, it was a, with a great experience recording it. So I think, I dare say, I think it'll be a good recording. <laughs> How do you go about creating the atmosphere of poisonous gas? <laughs> <laughs> And in particular, how much of this is an active uh, process, and how much is sort of passive? It just emerges. Um, the poisonous gas. Um, that was. It was all to do with. Um, I took the rondo form of, of the Beethoven and, and I loved the idea of, of having different episodes of music, but I wanted them to be as if you were walking along a city street and there were windows open, open and you could hear different kinds of music, like rock music and, and jazz and different kinds of music coming through the windows. And so the tempos um, don't, they don't um, beautifully uh, blend together as the Beethoven does. They just, they just interrupt each other. But over the top, I put this layer of, of string harmonics, which was sort of floating above it in, in a slightly nasty way. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's how I made the poisonous gas out of violins. <laughs> Noted. <laughs> 
Yes, I, I was really fascinated by your comment about not really getting a piece of music on first hearing. Because, um, I mean, any work of art that's really complex, um, it's going to be demanding. You need to give a lot of time to it. And, of course, um, for anyone who is interested in 20th century, sorry, 21st century uh, music, um, you know, you can hear something on the radio. Radio 3 will broadcast it once, and you don't know if you're ever going to hear that piece again. Will it ever come out on record? Will it turn up um, at, at, at you know, one of the venues? And, I mean, what, what's it like for a composer to... You know, it, it must be very gratifying to get that first performance, but then... Are you ever going to get another performance? It's it's really hard because the whole the whole thing is around the premiere. You know, you, you can you can get lots of publicity whipped up for a premiere, but after that, it it can just sink. And um, I think it, it it's kind of depressing for a composer knowing that the audience really won't won't have have got all the detail of of all the work that you. And it's not their fault, you know, but how could they possibly? Um, if you read a, a novel you haven't read before, you can turn back a few yeah. pages to see who the lady in the red hat was, you know. Um, if you missed something, you can... Uh, if you're in an art gallery, you can walk away from a picture and come back and look again. Um, or you can have someone actually talking to you about it while you're looking at it. But a piece of music is... Um, it's something else, and I... I love writing for dance, actually, because then you have two chances to get it. You, you can see the music being expressed. Um, I don't know if anyone has experienced Del Croes, which is a way of learning music through movement. And it used to be um, used all the time in all the music colleges in the middle of the last century, and it's, it's, it just kind of faded away, but it's coming back again. And that is a wonderful way of learning music, because you actually... You, you learn the music through your body and, and a, a, f a fugue can be expressed by three dancers each doing the same thing and you see the fugue happening and it's a wonderful way of teaching and learning music and memorizing music. But um, I, I do think it's a big problem. I don't know what you think. Yeah, I mean, I was, yeah, I'm just thinking about it as you're talking and in, in one respect, we did really well with City Stanzas because I think eight orchestras have played it. So it got played a lot, but it would never have been the same audience who had the same chance to hear it twice. I think, it's a bi I think it's a big problem, and I've talked to a couple of conductors who are music directors of orchestras who have said that they, you know, there used to be this, I this idea in programming, oh, we play, whether it's a new piece or an old piece, we played this piece last year, we definitely can't program it the next season. I think some conductors are really moving away from that. They're thinking that both from the point of view of, you know, Soloists have a repertoire, you know, and I have certain pieces that I return to and again and again, and, and these conductors are saying, yeah, an orchestra should also have a repertoire, so it's for the good of the players, but also for the audience, so that they have the chance to have, you know, that first and second and third hearings, which, as you say, are it's a totally different experiences. I think it really helps if the composer is able to not, not give a pre-concert talk, I, I, because most people don't come to that, but actually to get up on stage before the piece is done with the players on the stage and maybe even demonstrate a few places and, uh, and, and really invite the audience into the piece and into the process. And I did it the other night actually with a, a new quintet at King's Place. And the quintet were there, and we were able to, to demonstrate little um, parts of the piece. And then, of course, the audience 
already were a step ahead and they could recognize the bits as they came past. And um, there was a very positive reaction to that. I, I absolutely think, agree with you that it's a good idea, but I still think there's nothing like hearing it a second time. Well, I yes. wonder it would be great if that, mm. there were more such opportunities. Um, firstly, I just want to say thank you very much, Jonathan, for a wonderful and inspiring concert. Thank you so much. Um, on the subject of post-toning music, Sally, um, new music, um, have you ever written new piano music for children? And how would you go about um, introducing new music, um, new piano music, um, to children? Um, I've written quite a few pieces for, for um, early stages of piano. Um, I think children are, are much less conservative than, than their parents when it comes to music. I think they'll accept more. Although I remember um, doing the uh, Bartok microcosmos when I was a, about six or seven and not liking the wrong notes. I, I, it really disturbed me. And in fact, they, I think they did an experiment with autistic children, giving them... Um, atonal music and these uh, really brilliant autistic children who can just play anything and they were all correcting <laughs> all those and making it putting it all in C major you know so um, future commissioners <laughs> so um, I don't know it's very interesting I, I mean I, I remember thinking when I used to play in orchestral schools concerts that probably the, the children would have um, enjoyed the Rite of Spring much more than they enjoyed Eine Kleine Nachtmusik. But the parents or the, 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 the staff thought that they would like that, or well, they would like air on a G-string because at that time it was an ad for cigars. Um, and, and I think... Why do six-year-olds like more than yeah, cigars exactly. after all? You know? <laughs> um, because we like what we know. Um, but it, I think children are, are so fresh and so open that you can really, they're like little sponges, and that's the moment to, to catch them and, and really introduce them to, to lots of different sound worlds. Thank you very much for the performance tonight. Thank you. Um, as a big fan of you, <laughs> yours, I'd like to ask you a question that you mentioned earlier that there are certain pieces piano pieces that give you an opportunity to express yourself mm -hmm. in a way that otherwise you wouldn't have been able to or yeah. you wouldn't be able to and which are those pieces oh um, well uh, there are moments in many pieces um, Beethoven 111 is certainly one of them um, I would say speaking a bit broadly Schumann often plays that role for me that there's um, he, I, I find that he has a way of um, of accessing. Maybe loneliness is not the right word. Maybe solitude is is a better way of putting it, uh, and and translating it into sound, and which I find incredibly moving. And and there's something in it that I relate to very profoundly. Um, but it's not only it's not a phenomenon that's exclusive to Schumann. I think. Um, yeah, even Opus 109, there is there is something about the about the opening of the last movement that I I find I can't tell you what it is um, that I relate to, but it's again it, that's in fact maybe the point. It's something I would never be able to put in words, um, but is somehow very much a part of me. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I think we might have time for one more. Oh, there we go, yeah. Just on that, on that last point, Jonathan, I, 
when you're playing something that you say resonates with you, as, as you've just described, yeah. does that affect your playing, do you think? I mean, because you've got to play the notes and you've got to play it as yeah. it's specified, and yet there you are overlaying something of yourself. Yeah, I don't know if I would use the word overlaying. I mean, I think that, you know, when you're in, in, an interpreter, you have a, a pretty profound responsibility to try to get inside the, the, the mind of the, the person whose music you're playing. Um, and it's, it's so hard, right, because musical notation is so notoriously imprecise. I mean, notes are kind of non-negotiable, and E-flat's and E-flat, but every other kind of mark on a page, you know, a dynamic or, a, or an articulation or, or, or a tempo indication is, is some kind of a slightly vague request for some kind of a character or feeling. So you try really, really hard, but, I mean that it, but the fact that it, you can't do a perfect job of it doesn't make it less necessary that you try. But I think that inevitably um, some part of you... Um, comes into it. I think that if you approach music with honesty and devotion, um, then it would be impossible for your, I don't know if personality is the right word, for your, for your being to not somehow communicate itself. No, I think that's what I was um, meaning when I said alchemy. I mean, it's, uh, it was incredible watching the, or hearing the concerto come alive with, with Jonathan seeing it for the first time and, and finding his way around it. And there would quite often be things that he would do which I didn't expect and which I immediately stole. And <laughs> I thought, I'm gonna put that in the final score, you know, because that, that's better than what I thought of. Um, you know, dynamics and, you know, little things that you, it, it's so hard to make that map on the page that's gonna be completely precise for the player. And in a way you don't want to. You want to leave space for the performer. And this, this piece was so much to do with Jonathan's voice. And Jonathan's voice is heard more and more as the piece goes on, as a kind of, um, as a kind of lament in the last movement. And the way you played that wasn't something that I ever could have put on paper, you know. So that, that's what's so fantastic to be working with someone like this. It's also been one of the, the most interesting things uh, doing all of this work with, com with composers is finding that um, composers want that. Almost everyone who I've worked with has said some v version of that, that they want the piece to develop a new dimension when it's played based on the personality of the player. You know, I think it's, it's probably changed the way I approach old music. I think I may be a little bit less fearful of doing unintentional vandalism, <laughs> um, you know, when I, I, when, because I, realizing that composers expect sort of the, the voice of the performer to find its way into the... Certainly as a performer myself, I, I, I often think, you, you know, when you're sort of puzzling over Vorjak um, being inconsistent with his markings or Debussy not putting enough markings or... And, and you know, trying to everyone trying to get to the bottom of what he actually intended, and I'm sort of thinking, I hope no one ever does that with my music <laughs> because um, I want them to do what they want to do. You yeah. know, you, you you need to trust your performers, yeah. and um, yeah, with with the newer the music, the more precise the markings are. But in a way, it, it like for instance, you see a long note as a viola player, you see a long note in a contemporary score. 
and you don't automatically do vibrato because you think, well, they would write if they wanted vibrato, you know, so um, it's, it's, a, it's a different approach, really. Yeah. And, and there isn't a language. Um, there are so many different languages now, which is hugely exciting, but you, you don't always have a reference point. So you have to use your soul and your instinct in order to interpret a new piece of music. How terrible if that wasn't the case. I mean, you know, it's great that the, that's, it comes down to soul in the end. Um, I'd like to thank all of you for coming, but particularly to thank Sally so much for joining well, me. It's, it's so fascinating to talk to you about what these things. What a wonderful things. evening. Yeah. Thank you so yeah, much. Thank you.